Hello and welcome back to Across the State. It's great to have you with us again today. I'm your host, Matt Fisher, as always. And joining us today are three special guests here. First off, Andrew Handel, the director of the ALEC Task Force for Education and Workforce Development. Bill Ashworth, the vice president of public affairs and engagement here at ALEC. And from Northern Virginia, the founder of WICBET Bennett, professor of law at George Mason and the former director at George Mason Law, John Whitbeck. All three join us today to discuss the issue of education reform, but most importantly, what's been going on in Loudoun County, like in many places in America, the ongoing debate over education reform and more. John, Bill, Andrew, welcome to Across the States. Great to have you on with us. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks for hosting. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Good to be on. So, John, Let's take it over to you now. We want to learn more about you, obviously. So as we all know, you you work as a professor at law at George Mason. You're someone incredibly involved in the community, the work you do. So give our audience a background on who you are and the work that you're doing in Northern Virginia and beyond. Well, thank you, Matt. Yeah, I am formerly a professor at George Mason. I had to take a leave to manage Whitbeck Bennett, which I'm managing partner of. We have offices in several states. And then I also have a fundraising and consulting company, Bay Armory. So I'm involved in all sides of this issue, including practicing regularly in education law and uh, really having a good time doing it. So thank you for asking. Absolutely. So obviously, as I mentioned before, you are based out of Loudoun County. You are an attorney and you've been involved in on the ground seeing a lot of what's been going on there. Now, for anyone in the United States in 2021 and 2020, if you're a parent, if you have siblings who are still in K-12 through education, we have seen firsthand how the pandemic has changed Americans' perspective on education and also change your perspective on the public school districts and whatnot, and the school boards, issues of remote learning and beyond. So for our audience, obviously, they know Loudoun County dominated the news. But what led it to that place, John, of where all of a sudden we saw parents, we saw concerned citizens pay more attention to this, where we saw it becoming a national issue of debate? How did we get to this point? Well, it really started in 2019. As you know, Virginia has elections every year. They call them the off-off-year elections that occur, which are state delegates, state senators, and all your local supervisors and, and many cities, city officials. But Loudoun County School Board, all nine members were up for re-election or election and open seats in 2019. And it was a massive wave election in Loudoun County. The Democrat side of the aisle took control of just about everything in local government, which before had been under Republican control. And the result of it was kind of this new commitment to a that woke agenda that you've seen so much controversy. It started really with the shutdown during the pandemic of the schools, putting everybody on remote learning. Many parents thought that that went too far, stayed too long, and was a disaster, quite frankly, in terms of learning, mental health of our students, and all the other controversies that so many other parents have vocalized throughout the country, actually. Then it proceeded. There was a famous video of various school board members opening up to public comment. Fox News was reporting many of these parents giving their opinion at the school board. Uh, And then basically uh, it went into critical race theory. There was a big controversy about a lot of the critical race theory principles are being taught in our schools. That was exposed. And then this horrible situation involving a young underage girl that was unfortunately, sexually assaulted in one of our schools. And now you have the Attorney General, Jason Miaras of Virginia, the newly elected, investigating Latin County Public Schools. And so it's just been one thing after another for the last over two years. And as someone who has three children in Latin County Public Schools myself, 
it is very alarming what's going on here in, in my county. Bill, Andrew, any questions? Yeah. So, John, that's a great background. And, you know, for, you know, other citizens of Virginia, you know, who have school-aged children, this obviously caught our attention, not just our attention, but I think attention of parents across the country. It seems, and I, I may have a stranglehold on the obvious, but that this issue really sort of drove voters on election day in November and, you know, really resulted in just a massive kind of, you know, shift in not only controlling the executive offices, but in the, in the legislature. I'm taking you, you would agree with that. And, you know, how do you think, you know, do you agree that this really did impact the election and sort of like, you know, how has Governor Yunkins, how has he responded to this sort of, you know, mandate, if you will? Absolutely. I mean, putting my political hat on for a second, I mean, Loudoun County was approximately a 20-point county in 2017 for Ralph Northam. I mean, it was another massive blue wave. 2019 was the latest of the blue waves that we've been experiencing. Loudoun County moved 10 points in the direction of the Republican nominee, Glenn Youngkin. That was no small consequence in this election because what it did was it made it just enough for Glenn Youngkin to win. I mean, there was really the analysis that was being done about, you know, downstate Southwest Virginia and how much we had to perform there. He had to get approximately nine or 10 points better in Loudoun County to win. And I think these races are decided as a ticket, which is why I think all three of them won. But the Republican side did such a great job of moving their voters and motivating their voters that it moved Loudoun County, a very blue county, into the light blue column and I think that was the difference maker in this election, no question. Obviously, this issue has is taken on a significant amount of importance. Now, of course, there was the election of Glenn Youngkin, as Bill mentioned a moment ago, certainly a shockwave you know, for the body politic in general. Now, Youngkin's now governor, and of course, this is an ongoing debate. He recently issued an executive order, and there are legal proceedings going on. Now, obviously, with any executive order, with any sort of thing that's enacted, there are going to be question marks for not just everyday Americans, but even those who are in the political profession. So for our listeners, what does this executive order do? And what are the ongoing legal proceedings about that executive order going on? What are the school districts doing, the school boards doing in response to the Youngkin team's initial actions these first few weeks of his administration? Right. Well, there are actually two executive orders. The one, though, that's really that the, the average parent in Loudoun County should be concerned about executive order number two. EO2 basically said that a parent of a child enrolled in a elementary or secondary school or early childcare that has an educational program attached to it may elect to remove their child from being the subject of a mask mandate. And that was the original executive order that has now led to two lawsuits that have been filed, both on different aspects of attacking the executive order, by the way. The first one was by the Chesapeake School Board, which filed it directly to the Virginia Supreme Court. There's a provision of Virginia law that allows certain lawsuits to be directed right to the highest court in the state without having to go through the lower courts. And then a second lawsuit that came a little bit later, which was a collection of some of the school districts around Northern Virginia down to Richmond City, where they filed it in the circuit court of the county of Arlington. And Arlington County Circuit Court will hear that, and then if that, that will work its way up on, uh, on appeal depending upon the outcome. So those are the two lawsuits that are active that are attacking the executive order. And 
I'd say the Chesapeake school board lawsuit is probably the one that will decide the immediate future of the executive order. But because they're on two different bases, they're attacking on two different issues, you could see a second round. And then they're, the plaintiffs in these two lawsuits are very shrewd. I think they, they probably got together and decided to do this as a strategy. And, and, so, and they did it on two different grounds. And I think that's going to be significant in looking at whether or not this executive order survives. So again, it has to go through the Arlington Circuit Court first, and then will almost certainly be appealed. And then we'll have a good idea of the first round of the battle, at least. We'll know the right. first round by then. Okay. The thing is, too, if you allow me, I'll, I'll explain the difference between the two lawsuits. Yeah, absolutely. If, yeah. if you want. Please do. Yeah. Yeah. So the first lawsuit filed by the Chesapeake School Board is a petition for what's called a writ of mandamus and a writ of prohibition. These are two sort of ancient British legal principles that we have now adopted in our jurisprudence in, in Virginia. And a writ of mandamus essentially says, force an elected official to do something that they're required to do that they don't have the discretion to decline to do, okay? And a writ of prohibition is just a prohibited elected official from taking an action. And what they're saying essentially is that back in the special session that occurred in 2021, the General Assembly passed a law that said that local school districts had to adhere to the standards of the Center for Disease Control. And when executive order number two comes out, it's in direct conflict with that statute that was passed. And so it's a separation of powers issue. It's an Article 1, Section 7 separation of powers issue between who wins out, the governor's executive order or the legislature when it passed the law. So that's the first, you know, very, very simplified lawsuit. And, you know, and it's, what they're seeking to do with a writ of mandamus, and I'm not sure this is the best legal strategy. I think actually the governor probably has got the better, better chance of prevailing here. What they're trying to do is say the governor must do something, and that is adhere to the standards of the CDC, and therefore there's no discretion there. I'm not sure that's true. I think the, the executive order process allows the governor discretion. And then a writ of prohibition is probably the one that they might have the best shot. This, that's just flat out getting a court to order. You can't enforce your executive order. But the second lawsuit filed by all these school boards, and it's very instructive of who the school boards are, Alexandria, Arlington, Fairfax, Falls Church, Hampton City. We all know the political scenario that we're dealing with here. You know, this is a you know, Deep sort blue. of a... Yeah. Right, exactly. This is a complaint for what's called declaratory and injunctive relief. And what a declaratory action is, it's called declaratory judgment action, is asking the court to declare something to be true. And injunction is basically asking the court to order something be stopped. In this case, stop the enforcement of the executive order. And this is a separation of powers argument. It's a little bit different. It's a separation of powers between the governor and local school boards based on Article 8, Section 7, which is a very simple part of the Virginia Constitution that says the supervision of schools in each school division shall be vested in the school board. And so what they're saying and these, these different school boards are saying is we have constitutional authority over regulating our schools, including mass mandates. You have no power, Governor, to issue an executive order otherwise. It's our call. Well, I'm not sure they would have taken that same position with Ralph Northam, Governor, but that's really the separation of powers argument. So it's, it's two-pronged attack, separation of powers between the legislature, the General Assembly, and the governor, and the governor and local school boards. And it's a pretty fascinating uh, time to be practicing law because this is, we haven't seen this before where local school boards were, were claiming that they have more power than the governor of Virginia, but here we go. No doubt. Andrew, Bill, follow-up? Yeah, thank you, John. That was very interesting. So I was going to ask you about 
this bill, SB 1303. It seems to me, you know, in my very cursory reading of the bill that this, you know, was enacted during the height of the pandemic to provide for guidelines around in-person instruction in schools, to get kids back in schools, to give teachers access to vaccinations, you know, through their relevant local health districts. I guess my question is, is there sort of an expiration date on the law? And if there is, would the court just sort of, you know, kick the can down the road and possibly say, well, you know, the executive order, you know, may not be enforceable now due to SB 1303, but, you know, the governor's office is free to reissue one after the law expires. You know, that's a great question. I think the statute itself, to my knowledge, doesn't contain a specific sunset provision. In other words, it doesn't say this shall end, you know, in 2025. Right. But there is a sort of built-in deadline in there because it really says you're supposed to adhere to CDC standards. So what happens when the CDC says, all clear, no need for kids to wear masks anymore? Well, I'm not sure that really matters all that much because I think the CDC right now is recommending masks. They're not saying that it must happen for purposes of safety, which they had in the past. The CDC has had some pretty, you know, this is COVID-19, we must do this, we must do that. And then the president has issued executive orders and governors have done the same thing. So this is a recommendation that there be masks. But the school boards are not saying we recommend masks, but if you choose not to, parents, you don't have to. No, this is you will wear a mask. And the governor's saying, no, you don't get to decide whether a child wears a mask. A parent does. And then that's the conflict between the two. So I'm not sure the schools are even complying with the General Assembly's mandate, which is you got to follow the recommendations of CDC. Well, the CDC is only recommending masks. They're not mandating masks. It's a very important distinction, I think, in these lawsuits. Andrew? Yeah, you know, I, I think this is a really good, um, you know, microcosm of what's happening across the country more generally when it comes to things like public school accountability, right? You know, as, as John mentioned very well not too long ago, these school districts are literally making the argument that they are more powerful than an elected governor, which is shocking. But at the same time, I think that's also pretty representative of how a lot of these school boards feel across the country. So I think there's, there's a massive accountability issue at, at the local level in these public school districts. And, um, you know, that's just a stronger reason for school choice programs as well. Let the money follow the student, not the system, and, you know, give parents as much flexibility and authority to make the best decisions for their own kids. Yeah. So, John, just two quick questions. What happens if the Supreme Court upholds the governor's executive order? What would you anticipate school boards in Arlington and Fairfax to do? And then secondly, what if the court invalidates the executive order? Would there be a legislative solution? I mean, would the proponents, you know, doing away with the mask mandates, would would that be the direction they would go? What would come next? Well, if the Supreme Court upholds the governor's executive order, then at that point, the local school boards have no choice, in my opinion, but to give the opt-out to parents. They can still have a mask mandate in the sense that all children will be masked, but parents have to be given the rights afforded to them under the executive order number two. That will be subject to enforcement. At that point, let's say Fairfax County, for example, and I don't, great place to live, wonderful, wonderful county. I'm not picking on, I'm just saying, let's say Fairfax County says, hey, you know what? No, we're not following this executive order. They'd be subject to enforcement by the attorney general who represents the state. And they could, you know, that's, that would be a court order at that point. They could be 
made to show cause why they shouldn't be held in contempt of court providing that order if, if they want to go to the extreme. So I think at that point, you probably see them follow it. And look, I mean, this has become so political that there are parents that are going to voluntarily make their children wear masks. They're going to be parents that absolutely refuse to have their children wear masks. So I'm not sure there's a huge change in some of these counties that are suing the governor. I think all the governor's trying to do is give you the right to decide for yourself what your child's health care decisions are going to be. In other words, you know, I know better what my son or daughter should be doing in terms of masks to protect from this pandemic than a school board. You know what? In Loudoun County, I would trust parents over our school board any day, especially. So that's all he's trying. He's not saying masks are, are bad. He's not saying there is no pandemic. He's not downplaying it. He's merely letting us as parents have the decision making. And these school boards, they've made it clear, especially Loudoun, they think they know better. Terry McAuliffe said when he was running for governor, I don't think parents should be involved in children's education. And that's the fundamental difference between Governor Yunkin and the school board members that control these school boards, the majority of these school boards, is they just don't have the same view on the role of parents in education. John, could the government withhold public funds to these school districts if they refuse to abide by the order as upheld by the Supreme Court? Well, it depends. Most funding of school boards is done by your local board of supervisors or city council. So in other words, you know, I'll just use Loudoun County's example. The school puts out a budget and the budget says, this is how much we need for all the things we want to do. The Loudoun County Board of Supervisors during their budgeting then says, okay, we're going to give you, you know, X number of dollars to match what you're requesting. So really most of the funding for the day-to-day and pretty much everything almost comes from local school districts. You really had to have the governor and the Department of Education, Virginia Department of Education withholding a small amount that probably wouldn't even be a blip on the radar of some of these larger counties. You really have to have the Board of Supervisors of some of these counties decline to fund until they comply with the, the executive order. And in fact, you know, in Loudoun County, uh, one supervisor, the Catoctin District Supervisor, Caleb Kirshner, recently came out and said, release the sexual assault investigation report that you did, or I'm going to push to withhold funding. So boards of supervisors are starting to look at that as an option, potentially. But whether the governor or the Department of Education does that is probably less effective because so much of the money comes from the local government. I think the biggest tragedy of all here, you know, is that all this energy being focused on lawsuits and, you know, these squabbles, well, not enough energy focused on the children, period. Not enough energy being focused on educating the job at hand. Couldn't agree more. In that vein of education, you know, what happens then, of course, if the executive order is overturned? Andrew, I'll loop into this question as well. What are some of the options available for the legislature in Virginia? What are some of the ALEC model policies that can be pursued? We'll go to you first, John, and then we'll pivot over to you, Andrew. Okay, so I'll answer it two-part and put the lawyer hat back on. If the executive order is overturned by the Supreme Court in the Chesapeake School Board lawsuit, that's simply going to be that the order is no longer enforceable and school boards will have the ability to do as they see fit on masks based on the legislature's directive that says you must follow CDC guidelines. The question will be whether the legislature will follow up with another law that says, okay, the CDC now says it's okay to not have masks in schools, your mask mandates now need to go. And I think that's really the issue, is is, is how far are school districts going to go? Are they going to make people wear masks forever in the schools? And by the way, and it's not only our children wearing masks, I went to my daughter's 
play last night. I had to wear a mask inside the school in, in the evening. So it's activities as well. So how long is that going to last? Is the legislature going to pass a law that says, okay, now it's done? Or are they going to be given the right as a school board to make a decision? Which brings me to my second point, which is if it's overturned based on the Fairfax, Arlington, Alexandria, et cetera, lawsuit that's in the Arlington Circuit Court, that's based on the constitutional provision that gives school boards the right to regulate themselves, which means it'll go on in perpetuity unless the legislature initiates the two-year process of changing the Virginia Constitution. So I think really that is the one that's the most significant problem for the governor in his executive order. If those school districts win that constitutional argument, it's not likely the executive order is going to go on. If the Chesapeake School Board does prevail, you still have the provision in the, in the General Assembly statute that says you follow CDC guidelines, which right now, again, is a recommendation, not a mandate. Andrew? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of different things that the legislature can do, you know, from a school choice perspective. Regardless of what the executive order says on, you know, mass mandates and what your political position on that issue might be. The nice thing about school choice and and parental rights policies is that you balance all of those out, right? You're just saying, if you live in a school district that mandates masks and that's a problem for you, then we'll give you a scholarship and you can take your child to a private school that doesn't require them. And the opposite is true too. If you're more comfortable having your child attend a school where masks are universally required, but your school district is not doing that, then you know, we can give you that scholarship and, uh, you know, you can go to a private school where, where it is required. So COVID has completely blown the doors off of school choice policy across the country. I mean, last year we had 18 states create or expand 28 different school choice programs. And among those, actually, a neighboring state to Virginia is West Virginia, where they created the Hope Scholarship Program, which is the most expansive education savings account program ever created in this country. of kids in West Virginia are going to be eligible for that on day one. Wow. And uh, that will provide full state education funding, and that money will follow the student, not the system. So, you know, as far as ALEC model policies, we do have our Education Savings Account Act, which looks a lot like the Hope Scholarship Program. It's a universal ESA and, you know, gives policymakers a template there for, you know, program administration, funding, and things like that. And we also have our American Civics and History Act that I would highlight, which does have some academic transparency provisions in there, you know, which is a big issue there. Uh, I know I mentioned accountability being a big deal for public school districts right now, you know, and, and enhancing that transparency and making sure parents are in the loop on what curriculum is being used is another really key thing that, uh, that we address in that model policy. And I know states around the country right now are considering legislation to do exactly that. And so that bill would make sure that parents are aware of what's being taught to their children in school, that they have the right to understand and be made aware of what is being taught in terms of literature and curriculum, correct? Yes, exactly. And and we actually take it a step further in the model policy where we say before any new material can be introduced in a social science course, it has to go through a public comment period. So the idea there being give parents 30 days to highlight any concerns that they might have or say how great they think those material is. Either way, you know, the key is making sure that they are in the loop every step of the way and they're not caught off guard a couple months later finding out that, you know, something um, controversial or unexpected was, was being taught to their kids. 
And John, this guts right to the heart of a lot of what was going on in Loudoun County, am I correct? Like this seems to be hitting a lot of these model policies directly at what was some of the several issues that were being raised in Loudoun County, right? Right, among 10 other issues going on in Loudoun County. Right, right. Certainly. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, Loudoun County has been, parents in the, in the public schools have been divided. I mean, they did a poll after they were removing remote learning. Half the parents said they're going to keep them all uh, 100% at home versus sending them back when it was in the hybrid situation we were in in, in 2020, 2021. So parents have been a little bit reluctant to go all in back, you know, no masks, 100% in person. So I'm not sure that parents are necessarily going to drive this. I, I think the problem in Loudoun County is any rational discussion about mask mandates is overshadowed by the fact that parents don't feel like their children are even safe in schools right now. Right. So I think that's really, you know, we've got two school board members that are under removal petitions pending in the Loudoun County Circuit Court to literally be kicked out of office. We have one who was the first one that was filed. She resigned rather than face the removal. So mask mandates and whatnot and and school choice policies are probably at the lower end of the spectrum right now because right now it's allowed us just about safety for kids. Right. Before we close, Bill, any last questions? John, as you know, we've seen this sort of issue of safety intersect with education. I mean, even in places like Alexandria, where the local city council, I think, just voted to reinstate school resource officers because of safety concerns. Right. Right. Now, this was, you know, and, and funny, this was a topic of discussion in 2019 in Loudoun County. A lot of, lot of folks that were campaigning on the right were for putting a resource on. Loudoun County has a nationally recognized, award-winning school resource officer program. Mike Chapman is a fantastic sheriff. And, and a lot of folks wanted to expand that program into all schools in Loudoun County. And the Democrats on the other side campaigned against it as it was racist, essentially, to, to boil down the argument. And, and that you know, these deputies could not be trusted in schools. And now you're seeing this kind of movement back in that direction because of what happened a lot in large part in Loudoun County. And when a, a jurisdiction like Alexandria votes, deep blue Alexandria, you know that the needle is being moved in the direction of public safety. And you know it's a large part why Jason Miara is attorney general. That was his message. And people are very concerned about the safety of their kids in schools in every jurisdiction, not just the red ones or the purple ones. Well, I know everyone here, Alex, shares those concerns and worries for the future as well as the safety and education of our children. And John, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Andrew, Bill, you as well. Thank you for joining us here in Across the States. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, John. Thanks, Matt. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. You guys are great and loyal. We appreciate each and every one of you. Be sure to stay tuned for more of Across the States as we bring you the premier state policy podcast. Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alec States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council.